We'll take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Daniel. We're going to dive back into our study here of this great uh, Old Testament prophetic book, and we're going to be looking at chapter 3 this morning, Daniel chapter 3. Because of my Scottish heritage, one of the most intriguing and inspiring chapters in church history for me personally is that of the Scottish Covenanters. And not many people have heard of the Scottish Covenanters, but it's truly a fascinating group. Back in the early to mid-17th century, the King of England was considered the supreme ruler over the affairs of the government and the church. He declared himself not only the king of the nation, but also the king of the church, and refusing to honor him and pray to him would result in torture and death. Well, in 1638, thousands of Christians in Scotland band together and signed what was known as the National Covenant, affirming their belief that in spiritual matters, they acknowledged only one head of the church, and that was obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. And for them, this covenant was, was much more than just a, a signed piece of paper. It was a loyal commitment to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, as you would expect the king regarded these Scottish covenanters as disloyal rebels and he sought to destroy them. And so he specially recruited men from prisons and really the worst and most violent segments of society and he gave them full authority to hunt these covenanters down in every moor and every glen and maim them and kill them in any way they pleased. Well, because of Fear of persecution and possibly death, many of those who had signed the covenant fell away from the cause, but hundreds of others maintained their sole allegiance to the king of kings and his kingdom, and it cost them their lives. There's numerous stories told of those who were martyred for their faith, refusing to deny their commitment to Christ. Uh, Some years ago, I was given an album called Celtic Cry. And it's uh, really uh, songs that memorialize the, 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 the exploits of these Scottish covenanters. If you've never uh, heard of this album, I would encourage you to, to get a copy of it. You can download it, I'm sure, on iTunes. There's copies in our resource center. But uh, even the, the jacket itself has these stories, these testimonies as you open it up. And every song is based on a, a story of a martyr. One of the Scottish Covenanters. It's a fascinating uh, musical um, project that really highlights these great uh, people in, of faith in the, in the history of the church. But one of the most moving stories is, is one of the, the Battle of Rullion Green. And as the story goes, this particular event took place in the Pentland Hills in Scotland, and 900 men and boys decided to march out to Rullion Green to boldly stand up for their faith as, as covenanters. Some of the younger and, and weaker among them, fearing that they might be too cowardly and deny Christ and, and run away when, when trouble came, they asked to be literally tied by the wrist to an older, stronger believer who had no thought of ever turning back. And so when they arrived in the hills of Rullion Green, they were met by thousands of what were known as dragoons, these red-coated mercenaries on horseback, and they were given uh, the chance to accept the king as the head of the church or die. They, they were given one last chance. 
And these men, both young and old, chose to die. And so after the first wave of slaughter took place by these dragoons riding through the crowd, just hacking with their swords and maiming people and killing people, the the covenanters were given another chance to renounce their faith in Christ. And of those that remained, one shouted out this quote, Don't do it. Don't do it. This is the best act that you'll ever fulfill for your faith in Christ just before you meet him. And at that, the army of dragoons, in a rage, charged again, and the remaining covenanters courageously and unashamedly held their ground and were hacked to death for the sake of Jesus Christ. I share that story because I think it is reminiscent of the bold, genuine, unyielding faith of Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, here in Daniel chapter 3, when they refused to bow down to the most powerful man on earth. They refused to compromise. They said no at the risk of being burned alive in a fiery furnace. You may already know this, but they're legendary act of faith is memorialized in what we refer to as the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. It says in verse 32, and what more shall I say for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. There's a reference to Daniel there. Quenched the power of fire. I think that's a reference, a veiled reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And so here we see their great act of faith memorialized uh, by the writer of Hebrews. Uh, Peter, uh, I believe, writes a great, um, uh, really a passage that is illustrated by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as he was writing to Christians facing all sorts of trials and persecution. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, Peter said this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by what? Fire. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was literally tested by fire. And their faith, in the end, as Peter said, glorified and honored the Lord. It brought great honor and glory to God. And so you could say that the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was fireproof. Um, if something's fireproof, we know it means it can stand uh, the heat of a fire. It's, it's unaffected by the flames. So fireproof faith means that, that it's faith that is resistant to the fiery trials of life. And how we respond to, to trials is one of the surest tests of whether or not we're truly saved. That's what James says at the very beginning, uh, consider it all joy, right, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your, what, Faith develops perseverance. 
And so genuine faith, this is James' point, and really the point of Scripture is that genuine saving faith, true saving faith, grows and thrives amidst trials, whereas false faith gets scorched and withers away in the midst of trials. That was part of the parable of the soils. If you remember back in in Mark chapter 4, there was four types of soils, and Jesus described one in this way, the, 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 the soil... Uh, the rocky soil, if you will, uh, in Mark chapter 4, verse 5, other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil, and after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And he went on to describe this, this soil and, and that what type of person it represented in verse 16. It says, in a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary, then when affliction or persecution or trial arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And so really, trials are a test of our faith, and whether it's real or fake. And so the question we need to ask ourselves this morning, is our faith genuine or is our faith counterfeit? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 to examine ourselves, to put our faith to the test, to see if we're truly saved. And so this morning, we're going to have an opportunity to have our faith tested to see how it compares to the genuine faith displayed by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here in Daniel chapter 3. And what I want us to see this morning are three evidences or proofs of fireproof faith. Three evidences of fireproof faith. Number one, fireproof faith stands up for God. Number two, fireproof faith entrusts itself to God. And then finally, we're going to see that fireproof faith brings glory and honor to God. Let's look first of all at how fireproof faith stands up for God. And let's read the first 12 verses here as we wade into this very familiar story. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and it's with six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire." Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason, at, the sa- at, at that time, certain Chaldeans or Babylonians came forward and brought charges against the Jews. 
They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. Again, that's the way you kissed up to a king in that day. Uh, you, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. The first thing you need to know is this chapter was, or or the events of this chapter were probably about 15 years after the events in chapter 2. There's some time that has passed in that white space between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. But apparently, if you remember, chapter 2 was all about uh, this dream that the king had, King Nebuchadnezzar had, and was, was very disturbed by this, and he asked his, his uh, wise men to tell him not only what the dream meant, but to tell him the dream. And nobody could do that except for Daniel. And so uh, Daniel revealed to him this, this dream and said, this is what you dreamed. You saw this huge image, uh, right, with the head of gold and the, 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 the midsection of silver and then bronze and then iron. And it was a, a picture of uh, the, the coming nations of the world, the times of the Gentiles, uh, led by the Babylonians and then the Medes and the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. And then, of course, that rock, that mystery rock that came hurtling from heaven was, of course, a picture of Jesus Christ, not only his first coming, but also his second coming. Well, with that as our background, as you move into chapter 3, apparently Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream went to his head. Because here we see him building a, what? Image, a a statue um, that was 90 feet tall nine feet wide. Some would say that it's clearly this was an image of himself, that this was a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, We can't confirm that from the text. Some would say it was uh, more like an Egyptian obelisk on which were recorded his exploits and and conquests. But the point was that uh, it was tall as an eight-story building. And he, he built it out in Dura, a plain about six miles outside of Babylon. I guess the, the closest thing that we have to compare it to is if you've ever driven up to Huntsville and you've seen the statue of Sam Houston. Anybody know how tall that sucker is? It's not 90 feet, I can tell you that. It's 67 feet tall on a 10-foot base, so a total of 77 feet tall. And you drive by that, sorry, that's, a, that's a big old thing. You can see that miles away as you're coming down the river. You can see that a long ways away. So imagine another 10, 15 feet, right? Here was this, this image, if you will. I'm going to say it was an image of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, I guess in light of his significant role in Gentile history, according to this dream, he thought it was appropriate for the reigning king of kings and lord of lords to be revered by all men. And and notice he didn't make, if he was just simply making a replica of what he had dreamed, it would have been gold and silver and bronze and, and iron. But what was it? It was all gold because it was all about him. Typical of this egomaniac that we're getting to know here. 
He was attempting here to unify his kingdom, to centralize power in himself, to make sure that no one rebelled and that everybody stayed loyal to him. And the fact that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to be worshipped by the people that he ruled over, again, is a, a clear indication that, that this, he was truly an egomaniac. Uh, uh, I think one of the most memorable images, and you probably remember this as well, in the war in Iraq is when the U.S. troops went into Baghdad and they pulled down that 20-foot statue of Saddam Hussein. Remember that? Anybody that makes a statue of themselves, any leader of a nation that makes a statue of himself, and basically I'm the, it's all about me, right? This was Nebuchadnezzar. And notice there's a number of times this list of officers. Anyone who served in any official capacity in Nebuchadnezzar's government or regime, every level of authority was represented here. You have the satraps, which were the chief representatives of the king, and the prefects were the military commanders and the governors, the civil administrators, the counselors were the political advisors, the treasurers, they were the financial administrators, the judges, they were the legal administrators. And then you have the magistrates who passed judgment, they maintained the law. All of these people on every level of government and, 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 and uh, population were to swear their total allegiance and complete submission to Nebuchadnezzar's absolute authority. And again, they represented the people who they ruled over. So in essence, everyone in the kingdom would be bowing down and worshiping the king. And so the king's herald commanded that everyone was to bow down and worship the statue whenever they, they heard the band play and anyone who refused would be cast into this fiery furnace. And so the penalty for not bowing down was immediate execution. Now again, this was more than just a political rally. Okay, We've been watching a lot of political rallies these days on, on, the, on, on television right, and on the internet, but this was, this was more than a, a, a political rally. This was a worship service. The fact that they were commanded to worship, it's 11 times in this chapter the word worship is used. Again, this this was not just a political thing, this was a a spiritual thing, this was a religious thing. And so Nebuchadnezzar may have been, like the king of England, uh, establishing a centralized religion like so many other kings had done in history, and he, he was establishing himself as both the head of state and the head of religion. In other words, everyone who was to serve under him were to recognize him as both the political and, and spiritual authority. Now, we know everyone in Babylon were used to bowing down to all sorts of gods and idols. We know that... Um, there was some meat that was offered to the idols before, or the food, the food that was presented to the king and to his uh, government and the young men who he brought in to, to rule with him and to help him administrate his government. That meat was offered to idols. We know that from Daniel chapter 1, and that's when Daniel said, no, not me, I, I can't eat that, right? So, the, so idolatry and, and, and the worship of other gods was just commonplace in Babylon. So, so this was no big deal. If you were a Babylonian leader, I mean, this was just doing what you always did, was just, just conforming to the rest of society and doing what everyone else was doing. And yet in this, 
in this sea of people bowing down, there were three men who were standing up, who refused to bow. Whenever I read this account, I can't help but remember very vividly the the album cover of one of my favorite albums growing up by Keith Green, and it was called No Compromise. And if you've ever seen the album cover, it's a picture of this scene. It, it shows uh, the king being carried, King Nebuchadnezzar being carried uh, in this chair and, uh, and, and, and this sea of people just bowing down and, and worshiping him, and you have this one guy standing up, like just in your face, king. I love it. No compromise. And that was a great, you know, one of his... Keith Green's greatest albums. But again, the point is that they, they boldly defied the command of the most powerful man in the world. We're not going to bow. Why? Because these three young men were faithful Jews who refused to worship the statue. And it's very obvious why. Uh, if they, if, all you need to do is read the beginning of the Ten Commandments. I mean, this goes back to the inauguration of the nation of Israel when God gave them the law uh, on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. This is what he said. This is how he began the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God and brought you out of the land who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. In other words, I'm the one who redeems you. Therefore, this is what I expect of you. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so here was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, you know what, we were commanded by God to never make an image right? Uh, not, not even to, to make it or bow to him, let alone make an image. This is idolatry. And I think what we see in Daniel chapter 3 is probably the best illustration that I know of in the scriptures of what's called civil disobedience. When a follower of God or a Christian defies the authority that God has placed over them. In other words, disobeys the law. Uh, You're familiar with Acts chapter 4, verses 13 to 19, where Peter and John were arrested because they had healed uh, the lame beggar and word was getting out and all people were stirred up in the temple and wondering what was going on and they're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and so the religious leaders arrested them and pulled them into their presence. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 15. When they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it, but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in, his, in this name in the name of Jesus. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. In other words, it is against the law for you to talk about Jesus. We forbid you from talking about Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop 
speaking about what we have seen and heard. We're not going to stop talking. We can't. And then later in chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 27, again, uh, more of the apostles, along with Peter, were arrested uh, for preaching the gospel. Acts chapter 5, verse 27, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we, have ge- we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, what? We must obey God rather than men. And so we have this example, this illustration back in Daniel chapter 3 where um, basically Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were committing civil disobedience. They were disobeying a direct order from their leader. Why? Because it would violate one of the commands of God. And that's how you know when civil disobedience is appropriate, when someone tells you to do something that God has told you not to do, or they tell you not to do something that the Bible tells you to do. That's civil disobedience. Beyond that, you must submit to the government and do what they tell you to do. Submit to your authorities and up to the point where they basically tell you to sin, and that's when you draw the line in the sand and say, no, I can't do that. See, even though they were employed by Nebuchadnezzar, they ultimately served their God in heaven who had explicitly forbidden them to bow down and worship idols, Exodus chapter 20. And so they were reported here, notice it's interesting, they were reported by their fellow leaders who obviously were jealous that these foreigners had been promoted to positions alongside them rather than relegated to positions of servitude like most captured people typically were. And so I think there was obviously resentment here uh, in the hearts of these other satraps and prefects um, um, for taking positions. These guys took positions that really they considered theirs. You've been there maybe in the office place where someone else was promoted to a position that, that for all intents and purposes was yours. And so we see the same thing. We're going to see the same thing in Daniel chapter 6, that the, the fellow, Daniel's fellow leaders didn't like him, and so they wanted to um, kill him. They wanted to see him dead. They wanted to get rid of him. And so they made up these accusations against him. And so, again, here, in an attempt to promote themselves, in the king's eyes, uh, these leaders accused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with treason. And so we see here in the first 12 verses that fireproof faith stands up for God. Fireproof faith stands up for God. Now let's move on and notice how fireproof faith entrusts itself to God. Fireproof faith entrusts itself to God. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in rage, we know this is an angry dude, right? We've already figured that out in chapter 2 when, the, when his, his wise men said, well, king, nobody's, nobody expects their wise men to... to to tell them the dream. They just have to interpret it. You want us to, uh, we can't do that. And he says, listen, if you can't do that, I'm going to tear you from limb to limb and destroy your houses and turn them into outhouses. He was an angry man. And so here Nebuchadnezzar, 
in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. In other words, I'm going to give you one more chance. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands. That's one of those statements where you kind of move away from Nebuchadnezzar. I don't want to get struck by lightning there, bro. You're, you're picking a fight with God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need you to give an answer. We do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so here we have these three young men given a chance to change their minds. But of course, they, they would not. And here we, again, see Nebuchadnezzar considering himself to be above all gods. He, he, he blasphemously challenges any god to oppose his authority. In other words, he was, again, essentially picking a fight with God here. He's, he's challenging God. What are you going to do about it? And I think in verses 17 and 18, this is, this is one of the most beautiful, powerful expressions of true faith found anywhere in Scripture. If you don't have verse 18 underlined, do it now. But even if he does not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They, they demonstrated here, these guys demonstrated absolute confidence in God's superior power to deliver. And he says in verse 17, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So they, they were confident that God was in control, that he was on the throne, that God reigns. And they had nothing to fear. They weren't the least bit worried. However, they weren't presumptuous. And while they were totally confident in God's power, they were also totally submissive to God's will. They knew he could deliver them, but he didn't, they didn't know if it was his will to deliver them. And this is a great principle for us to, 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 to wrestle with in our hearts and our minds this morning in that it's not always God's will to deliver someone from their trial, but God will always give grace to bear the pain and face death even without fear. Here we're talking about these men who were rescued, delivered from the fire or through the fire. Well, all you need to do is look back over church history and consider all the martyrs who were burned at the stake. They died. God chose not to deliver them, but he sustained them. And there's some of the greatest 
testimonies of faith, some of the greatest declarations of faith that were proclaimed by these men as they were burned alive at the stake. And the bottom line for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here was not that they would be delivered, but that they would obey God. And obeying God was more important than life to them. They would obey him even if it meant they had to die. It reminds me of what Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I don't consider my life dear at all. To live is Christ and to what? Die is gain. And so here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, listen, even if, even if God doesn't come through for us, as we hope and pray that he will, we're still going to remain true to him. Either way, we're going to worship him because he's worthy to be worshiped. I love what Job said in Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, I will praise him. I will hope in him. There's a great song, by the way, if you've never heard it, Shane and Shane called Though He Slay Me. I encourage you to check that out, download that, listen to that. It's a powerful uh, rendition of this Job-like heart. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Look over to Habakkuk. You're there in the same neighborhood if you're in Daniel chapter 3. Just turn to the right a bit and find Habakkuk. You're bound to come to it. Habakkuk chapter 3, and here is the prophet Habakkuk wrestling with God because he just found out that God was going to use this pagan nation, Babylon, to destroy uh, and punish the nation of Israel for their sin and rebellion, and he couldn't get his mind around, God, I know we're sinful, I know we're wicked, I know we deserve to be punished, but how could you use a nation that's even worse than us to, to punish us and discipline us? And so he was wrestling with that whole thought. And in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16, he admits that, that what I heard it caused my inward parts to tremble at the sound of my lips, at the sound of my lips quivered, decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. So, uh, man, I, I heard this prophecy from the Lord and I had to pronounce it to the nation of Judah and man, it just caused me to tremble and now we're just sitting here waiting for the other shoe to fall, if you will, for the invasion to take place. But then notice this, this great declaration of faith, verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. By the way, that doesn't sound so bad to you or me because we're not an agricultural society and I don't have some olive trees in my backyard and I don't have some sheep in the backyard that, and some cattle in the stalls that are necessary for my livelihood, right? But basically he's saying when, all, when the bottom falls out of our society, 
Verse 18, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and he makes me walk on my high places. In other words, no matter what happens, no matter how things turn out, God is always worthy to be worshipped. Again, let me read for you from 1 Peter 1 Peter chapter 4 now, we started by reading 1 Peter 1, Paul, or Peter talked a lot about trials and uh, likened them to fire. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he says this, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening. Don't be surprised that you're experiencing these fiery trials, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of, of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Now note verse 19, therefore, in light of all this, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In other words, if you're in a situation where you're being persecuted, uh, you're suffering, you need to just do right and trust God. Do the right thing and trust God. Trust Him that you're just going to step forward in faith, you're going you're to say the right thing, you're going to do the right thing, and you're going to trust God for the results. And you may end up being released or you may end up getting hanged or burned at the stake. But you do the right thing, you say the right thing, and you trust God. There's a chapter in a book, I believe it's um, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, and that's the name of the chapter is Do Right, Trust God. I hand it out often in counseling cases when people are kind of torn about, they're in this situation, what do I do? I just say, do the right thing, and trust God. And so fireproof faith entrusts itself to God. It stands up for God. And when it comes to, okay, now what? How, how are they going to respond to me because I took a stand for the Lord? Well, they, they entrust themselves to the Lord. That's what fireproof faith does. And then finally here, fireproof faith brings glory and honor to God. Fireproof faith brings glory and honor to to God. Let's continue to read uh, to the end of the chapter, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. Okay, so he was mad. He was in a rage and angry in verse 13. Now he's filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, this is one of those uh, uh, things that I hope they have DVRs in heaven, right, where you can kind of go back and they recorded this. And I want to see, I want to zoom in and I want to pause on that facial expression, right? Uh, what, that, what, is, what did Nebuchadnezzar look like when he was enraged at these three young men who defied him? 
He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Which, by the way, was foolish. If you really wanted them to suffer, he would have let it kind of just be at a slow burn and they would have suffered a lot longer, right? I mean, now he wants them to be instantly incinerated, these guys. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coat, coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire for this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot. The flame of the fire flew, uh, slew these, those men who were carried by men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire still tied up. Now again, if you remember back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had high regard for these guys. He had promoted these guys, right? They were head and shoulders of all the rest along with Daniel, and even Daniel got, uh, convinced him to let them come with him and, and, and be a part of his council, and, and, and so he liked these guys, but that didn't matter now. Why? Because they defied him, and he wanted to make an example out of them, for anyone else who might consider rebelling against his authority. And so he wanted to, to, to publicly display the cost of rebelling against my authority. Proud men don't like to be disobeyed. Dads, that's something for us to consider when we discipline our kids in anger. Are we, is that righteous anger, righteous indignation that they've disobeyed God? Or is that selfish anger, you disobeyed me? Proud dads don't like to be disobeyed. So he has the furnace heated seven times hotter than normal, commands them to be thrown in fully clothed. I mean, he couldn't kill them fast enough is the point. And the furnace was so hot that the men who threw, threw them in died. It was that. I mean, that's a hot furnace. If you're just like throwing people in and you like, it kills you, it's just like a blast. I mean, we're talking about a blast of heat here that just in, that, that killed them. And yet, the other three men there, Shadrach, Meshach, and fall into the midst of the furnace, probably this open kind of boiler, if you will, with an open top where they could walk up and drop things in, but then there was a window on the side or an opening on the side where that was fed, where that fuel was put in there, and where the king could watch what was going on in the furnace. And let's see what he saw, verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, wasn't that three men we cast bound in the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, well, look, I see four men loose and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the forest is like, of forth is like a son of the gods. Or as Nebuchadnezzar in VeggieTales says, he's real shiny. So Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he sees these guys walking around unbound, but, but, but all of a sudden he, he, well, there's a fourth guy in there. And he looks supernatural. 
And again, there's lots of ink spilled on who this fourth individual was. Some say it was an angel. I take the view that it was none other than Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state, what's called a theophany. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, uh, we see the angel of the Lord. There's a distinction made. It wasn't just an angel. It was an angel of the Lord. And uh, all the surrounding context would would point to the fact that that was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, the second member of the Trinity showing up in the Old Testament. And of course, we could talk all day about what a sweet image that is of how Christ goes through trials with us. Because we have to, again, come to grips with the fact that that God doesn't always save us out of trouble, but he will always remain with us in the trouble or through the trouble. God doesn't always choose to answer our prayers with miraculous deliverance. And I know there's many in the church today who believe that, listen, the reason why you're not healed... The reason why you're still in that situation is just because you don't have enough faith. And if you have enough faith, you'd be healed. So are you telling me that these guys didn't have enough faith? They got thrown in the the fire here. The point is that God, God can heal anyone at any time. But he doesn't always choose to step in and act that way. He did for these guys. But he may not choose to do that for you, how many people you know that have died of cancer? Godly people. And, and, and everyone was praying that God would remove the cancer, would heal the cancer, and, and yet they, they prayed for months, and yet they died of cancer. Is that because you're, you're telling me they lacked the faith? No, that was God's will. You think about Johnny Erickson Tata, great testimony of of a woman of faith who was paralyzed as a teenager when she dove off a a floating dock in the Chesapeake Bay and and hit her head on the ground and snapped her neck and she was a quadriplegic, instantly a quadriplegic. And as she was laying in traction for months in the hospital, people would come and pray over her uh, for healing. And she honestly believed, if I have enough faith to believe all these people are praying for her, I'm going to be healed. Well, guess what? She's still riding around in a wheelchair today. Is it because she lacked faith? I I would dare any of you to tell me that Johnny Erickson Tata lacks faith. The point is that God chose to use that paralysis to glorify and honor him. In an amazing way. She has a worldwide ministry today, caring for those who are in difficult situations similar to hers. One commentator said this, I thought this was a precious thought, quote, that the Lord Jesus Christ walked in the flames with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and if the three had compromised, they would never have had the privilege of walking with Christ in the furnace's flames. And then he said this, the place of unprecedented heat is also the place of unprecedented fellowship with the Savior. Those times when you feel like the heat's on in your life and you're dealing with some kind of trial, some unprecedented trial in your life, 
That is also the place of unprecedented fellowship with the Savior. And I guarantee you there could be people in this church alone that I could bring up here and talk about, and they would share testimony that it was through that horrific trial that you went through, whatever it was, relationally, physically, financially, it was through that trial that you were the closest that you've ever been to the Lord because of the sweet fellowship that Christ provides us in the midst of the trials that he ordains for our lives. And so these guys come out unharmed. Notice what Nebuchadnezzar, he he comes near, verse 26, to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God. There it is. And come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Beto came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw and regarded these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Listen, you, you sit next to a campfire making s'mores for a few minutes, and you smell like a fire pit, Right? I walk into the mechanic's office where I have my car service, and I'm in there just paying my bill for three minutes, and I come out smelling like cigarettes because the whole place smells like that. And I'm like, man, I got to go home and change now. Three minutes, I'm in this office, and they're in a furnace. They don't even smell like smoke. No burned skin, not a hair of their body was singed. You ever cook bacon? I mean, you get your, like, there's no hair on your knuckles when it's all over, you know? They're just cooking bacon, okay? These guys are in a furnace. Not even a a hair on their body was singed. And I think this is a, this was a literal fulfillment of the promise that God gave through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 and 2. This is a precious, precious promise not just to the nation of Israel, but to God's people of all ages. Isaiah 43, verse 1, But now, thus says the Lord your Creator, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by my name, you are mine. And so therefore, check this out, because you're mine, because you belong to me, when you pass through the waters, I will be, what? With you. doesn't say I'm going to, Rescue you from the waters. Your house is not ever going to get flooded. I'm not saying that, but if you, it does, I'm going to be there with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. This is a literal fulfillment of that promise. And notice how Nebuchadnezzar responds, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything of offense 
offensive uh, against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Again, in a moment of time, these these three guys go from almost being killed by the king to being promoted by the king. Talk about a schizo. (laughs) But notice, once again, God was glorified. Why? Because of their powerful witness to the true and living God in the midst of this pagan culture, a pagan king gave glory to God. Why? Because he saw that God was more precious to these three guys than life itself. And this is something we need to remember as we endure trials for the glory of God. It's not just accomplishing good in our own lives. It may be God's way of witnessing to unbelievers who know us, unbelieving family members, co-workers, classmates, that you may be making an indelible mark in their minds for God. When they see you dying of cancer, but having a peace in your heart that passes all understanding. That's a powerful witness. God can use that suffering and that endurance, that perseverance in the midst of trial to to bring him great glory. And so here Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges Yahweh as the supreme God, the most high God. Again, this is a a phrase that's used repeatedly in this book. In fact, there's no other place in the Bible that repeats this phrase, the Most High God, more than the Psalms. And we know Nebuchadnezzar had already acknowledged this fact. Back in chapter 2, he, apparently he needed some reminding. We've mentioned that he has short-term memory loss. And he needed to be reminded again, and, it, and it's really, uh, again, even at this point, I don't think he's truly saved. I don't think he's, he's been converted yet, because he's still calling him the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's not saying he's my God. He's saying your guy's God. And it's not until the next chapter, as we'll see, Lord willing, next Sunday, that he honors God as his God. But in the meantime, he decrees that if anyone dishonored their God, they would be immediately executed in the same way that he had threatened to execute his wise men in chapter 2. I think I would be remiss if I didn't just make a comment about the prophetic significance of this. This is prophetic literature. And I think it's safe to say that this chapter represents or foreshadows how a world leader known as the Antichrist will someday assume both political and religious power and demand to be worshipped by everyone in the world and whoever refuses to worship him will be killed. 
And according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, Revelation 13, verses 8 and 15, this will happen at the midway point of the tribulation period. And while most people will bow down to the authority of the Antichrist, a, a small remnant in Israel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, will stand up to him and refuse to bow down to him, and some will be martyred for their faithfulness to Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ will deliver them out of the tribulation, or at least remain with them through that in, until his second coming, just like he did for these three who trusted him in the fiery furnace. I guess, guess what? All I'm saying is that I think there's going to be some folks very encouraged and very comforted by Daniel chapter 3 during the tribulation. They're going to be reading Daniel chapter 3 during the tribulation and drawing comfort and courage from the example of these guys. Obviously, this was intended to provide comfort and hope to the Israelites in Daniel's day in which he was writing this, who found themselves living under Gentile rule. They were 70 years in exile in Babylon. This was like a fiery furnace, if you will, but God had not forsaken them and that he would deliver them, he would restore them to their land and rebuild the temple and and city and ultimately fulfill every promise that he had made to them by defeating their enemies and establishing his eternal kingdom. And so there's application for the future, there's application in the past, but there's also application for us in the present. For anyone sitting here this morning who who may be in a difficult, frustrating, even life-threatening experience, God is still on the throne. Amen? God has not forsaken you. He will fulfill all his promises to you. He will be with you. And bring you through. He may not deliver you out of your situation, but he will be there with you through that situation. Warren Wiersbe said this in his comments on this story. He said, faith means obeying God regardless of the feelings within us, the circumstances around us, or the consequences before us. Faith means obeying God regardless of the feelings within us, the circumstances around us, or the consequences before us. Listen, God promises to honor them who honor Him. God will honor you if you honor Him. I asked Chris to lead us in closing this morning in that classic hymn, How Firm a Foundation. Let me just remind you of the lyrics because I think it draws straight, the lyrics are drawn straight from Daniel chapter 3. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuse to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my gracious, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee thy trouble to bless and sanctify thee thy deepest distress. And this is the part that brought this song to my mind. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not harm thee, I only design thy dross to consume 
and thy gold to refine. And then it closes with these words, the soul that on Jesus doth lean for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the example of not just the faith demonstrated by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Lord, this, this, this fireproof faith that we all long to have, but we're also comforted and encouraged by the example of your faithful deliverance of them, not out of the fire so much, but through the fire. And Lord, we confess, Lord, oftentimes we want to avoid trials and tribulations. We, we just, we pray that you would shield us from those things, and yet you have a divine purpose for the trials that you ordain for our lives, that you want us to go through difficulties and tribulations and pains and heartaches and persecutions and physical ailments, and not only for our good, but for your glory, and that you want to use these trials oftentimes to be a witness, to show off, if you will, through us to unbelievers who know us and who are watching us go through this particular trial. And so I pray that our hearts would be encouraged this morning as we leave this place and also just emboldened, Lord, to to stand up for the truth and to say and do the right things no matter the cost. And Lord, we'll trust you that you will glorify yourself. You'll do that which glorifies you the most. And so we submit ourselves to your will in that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.